I'm Deanna, and I'm going to be reading our passage this morning. It's going to be Matthew 21, verses 1 through 14. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed him. This is the word of the Lord. Since the days of King David, way back in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was really the center of Jewish life. It was the political capital of the Israelite people, later the, the Jewish people. It was also the religious center. You know, the, the great temple that Solomon built was built there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So I think given its prominence, if you didn't know the Jesus story and you're just reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, for the first time, the story of Jesus' earthly ministry, you would probably think given its prominence that Jesus spent most of his time in Jerusalem. But it's interesting, he actually spent most of his time like 80-ish miles north in the region of Galilee and 11 of his 12 disciples were Galilean and really didn't have these connections to Jerusalem. And so, like, kind of a question I want to answer this morning is what brought Jesus to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? I think one obvious answer is the feast of the Passover, one of the three great feasts of the Jewish people, was about to begin. So as an Orthodox Jew, Jesus normally would have gone if situation didn't prevent him from going. So he's going with uh, family and friends, this whole entourage, kind of extended Jewish family, and they're going to have that great commemoration of the days of Moses and the Exodus when God delivered the Hebrews from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. That was the Passover. So each year they went at that time and they remembered God delivered us before, God will deliver us again. A second reason that Jesus came to Jerusalem is to die. On this particular occasion... Several times leading up to this trip, he had told his disciples, I've set my face toward Jerusalem. I'm going, 
when I get there, I'll be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes who will condemn me and hand me over to the Gentile authorities. I'll be beaten, I'll be mocked, I'll be crucified, and on the third day, I'll rise again. So in Jesus' mind, as he goes on this particular trip, in his words in Luke 18, he put it this way, I'm going so that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So he knows, like, Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity past have written this grand narrative of redemption. And now he's saying, I have come to act this out. I have come to fulfill all of these prophecies through my death, through my burial, through my resurrection. That's why I'm coming. And I share that background because I want you to know, kind of at a minimum, Jesus wasn't some bumbling fool who just stumbled into Jerusalem one day and got himself killed. There is a secular theory out there that he never claimed to be the son of God, that he never said he was the Messiah, and he was as confused and taken aback as anyone. And the scriptures actually give us a very, very different picture of Jesus saying, I am going at Passover to fulfill all that the law and prophets have said about me. Jerusalem was a sacred place. It's still considered a very sacred place today. It's called literally the holy city. The temple there, as I mentioned, first Herod's temple, and then after that had been destroyed and rebuilt, or sorry, first Solomon's temple, then it had been rebuilt by King Herod. And that temple and that whole mount and the courtyards and the gates and that whole massive facility, which is like as big as a sports complex today, basically, was associated with religious practices of the Jews in particular. So Religious instruction, teaching of the Torah, the scriptures, prayers, tithing, of course, sacrifices as there's an altar there. But the thing that's missing from that temple was God himself. Okay, so way back in the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, two of the Old Testament prophets, you may be familiar with their names, the Jews were living in blatant rebellion, idolatry. They're literally like, we've conquered these other nations and we worship the gods that they worship that didn't do them any good, but we want their gods. And they, they just added to this kind of pantheon of gods. And they're like, yes, we worship Yahweh, but we also worship the Baals and the Ashtoreth and like all these other gods. And God keeps warning them through prophets like earlier Isaiah, but now Jeremiah and Ezekiel and just saying, you must turn from your rebellion like you are, you are turning God's favor against you by your sin. And this is recorded in Jeremiah 7, verse 4. The people of God, I mean, as they were called, they were the covenant people of God, but just incredibly presumptuous. They literally say, like, why do we need to repent? Like, what's God going to do? And they said this, we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And they turned it into this mantra of like, God has put his presence here. It's, it is the holy city. This is the sacred place. And they basically presume then to live however they want and say, God won't take his presence away from us. God is, God is or his presence with us is the thing that sets us apart from all the other nations. That would, that's what God himself said. So he's not gonna do anything. And I wanna kind of rewind for a moment and say, they're thinking in a way is partly true because way back in the days of the Exodus, when, when God is leading, you know, maybe a million Israelites out of Egyptian bondage, 
and leads them to Sinai. In Exodus 29, this tent of meeting in the middle of God's people was first called a tent of meeting or a tabernacle. It became the temple. It's God's idea. The people didn't come up with this idea of like, oh, let's build a temple to the Lord because other nations have temples or other people groups have temples. God said this, and God literally says this, I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God and they shall know that I am Yahweh their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. And so as people generations later are looking back, they're like, wait, it was God himself who said, build this temple, build this tabernacle, and I will dwell amongst them. But God's presence generations later was being taken for granted. It was literally being mocked. Like they're just doing things before God's face. It'd be like if you're you know, married and you're committing adultery before your spouse's face. They're doing this spiritually and just flaunting it. Like in your face, God, what are you going to do? And so God further warned his people. This is going on in Jeremiah 7. And he says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? Sound familiar? It's what Jesus said when he entered the temple on Palm Sunday. So Jesus, God, in the Old Testament, he's warning and warning and warning. And then the day comes, historians will say 586, 587 BC, where the glory of God departed from the temple. You can read this in Ezekiel 10. God left the building. And the Babylonians came and ransacked the temple and tore it down and deported the Israelites to become Babylonian captives. What I'm saying is, as it was in the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, so it was in the days of Jesus in this sense. I mentioned that King Herod had come and he had rebuilt Solomon's temple, same location, and built a a magnificent structure of white limestone and gilded with gold. And historians say that as you crested the Mount of Olives, this, this beautiful structure could be seen for miles. And in the middle of the day, like to look at it, it was blinding. There was so much gold. But like in the days of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, this magnificent structure and the beautiful exterior was a facade for a corrupt and broken interior life. See, the temple in Jesus' day was run by a wealthy, priestly aristocracy called the Sadducees. You may have read that word in Scripture before. They were a group opposite the Pharisees that had a lot of power, that were kind of in cahoots with Rome, and they often questioned Jesus, rebuked Jesus for his beliefs and his teaching. Um, There were 71 scribes, lawyers, elders, and priests who sat on the Sanhedrin, which was the highest religious council of Israel in the days of Jesus. They're basically Israel's supreme court. But this is the incredible thing. Like, ironically, in the place where God's glory was meant to dwell and where instruction for all the covenant people of God was to go forth from that place, nobody recognized God when he was physically present. No one believed that it was him. 
So Jesus comes to his temple on Palm Sunday. And it's such a basic fact that I think we can just skip right over it, that Palm Sunday is the day Jesus came. The glory has been departed for all these generations. Palm Sunday was the day where Jesus says, the glory of God goes back to the temple. And this is kind of the theme of what we're going to unpack this morning from Matthew 21. King Jesus came to deliver us from empty, powerless religion that lacks his presence. And you're going to see five things about his presence then as he comes, physically comes to the midst of his people on the highest holy day of Jewish life. Matthew's going to show us that his presence is humble, hopeful, holy, hospitable, and healing. Okay, so you know, close your eyes if you have to, but I want you to picture this scene of, of what we just read. So Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead in nearby Bethany. You know, one of his good friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Jesus has gone out to meet him a few days later. And they're like, no, 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 Jesus, don't raise him from the dead. He's been dead for a while. His body will stink. And Jesus just goes weeping, uh, frustrated, angry, sad at the brokenness of sin that leads to death and just says, Lazarus, come forth. And so word is getting back to Jerusalem. Hey, we've got a bigger problem on our hands because the itinerant rabbi, the teacher, the, the miracle worker, he's just raised somebody from the dead. And everybody knows who Lazarus is. And so they say that the, a lot of the religious leaders are actually leaving Jerusalem to go to Bethany to check out, like, is Lazarus alive? Because we do know he was dead. Is he alive? Because if he's alive, we have a serious problem. And John actually tells us in his gospel, they're like, if Lazarus is alive, we got to kill Jesus. So wrap your mind around that. So... All these crowds are going from Jerusalem to Bethany. All these crowds are coming with Jesus from Bethany to Jerusalem. There are already hundreds of thousands of Jews that are making their pilgrimage from the north, like Galilee and Judea and other places, and are walking that one road. So there are just throngs and throngs of people, some of them rejoicing, some of them skeptical, and the the first thing we see here is how does the king of Israel, who raises the dead make his grand entrance into the holy city. It says uh, on the, the back of, not just a donkey, but it says on the colt, a full of a donkey. Like a, the, the picture there is a, a baby donkey that still isn't weaned from its mother. And I literally just picture like his feet basically dragging in the dirt or he has to like pick them up to not drag in the dirt. And this is the way the king makes his grand appearance. And if you don't know, I think Jesus is doing something incredibly contrastive on purpose because Rome always put their leaders on horses. And the horse was a symbol of war, a symbol of, I come to conquer you, to defeat you, to crush you. It's a a symbol of pride. It's a symbol of strength. What was the donkey? Uh, Basically a smaller, sad-looking horse, right? You ever see a donkey and they just look like they're sad, like a melancholy horse, right? Um, but no, like a, a donkey was, was still an incredible animal, but was associated with gentleness. It was, it was hard to get a donkey angry. And with just a, a patient, I will bury heavy burden. 
okay? And, and still to this day, like if you want to hike to the bottom of the Grand Canyon all those miles and then come back out with all your packs and stuff, you know what you pay the guy to take with you? A donkey. Because it will just patiently bear your heavy burden for you. And that's how Jesus comes, okay? And by the way, Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 that says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I want you to look at that again. Behold, your king is coming to you. How will you know it's him? It'll be the strange guy on the baby, the baby donkey. So point one, Jesus' presence is humble. This is verses one through seven. And you have this amazing juxtaposition of the Bible asserting Jesus is king. And not just king of the Jews, he is king of kings and lord of lords. And yet this king isn't ostentatious or arrogant. Much to the chagrin of his followers, he's not coming to kill and maim and destroy their enemies. It just says he comes gently, patiently, harmlessly. He comes to faithfully bear our burdens on himself without quitting and without complaining. That's how Jesus comes. By the way, can I share a dirty little secret about the guys on horses? Many times they're on horses because they are tremendously insecure people. You ever know that kind of person that they're almost throwing their bit of authority in your face? They're reminding you that they're the lead they're the boss, they're the this, they're the that. Because really deep down, they don't know who they are. They don't know what their life's mission is. They're, they're confused. They don't know how long they're going to stay on top. And so all these things with brutality and pride and projection, it's all like this vain attempt to compensate for, I, I don't really know in the midst of my identity crisis how I'm doing or who I am. And here's the thing, like Jesus comes on a baby donkey because he knows who he is and he knows why he's come. And what a beautiful picture of, I have come to patiently, gently bear your burdens to enter the way he does humbly. By the way, you ever spend time with someone who is like truly powerful or truly wise or, or has real authority and yet in some, instead of coming across as like always defensive of that authority, um, just boasting, they're, they're gracious, they're kind, they're humble. Like instead of boastful bluster, it's like, man, this person sees me and cares about me. And I have a couple mentors like that, that like have real authority, have accomplished a lot of amazing things in life, and yet you, you meet with them, and it's not ever about them just telling you all about the amazing things that they're doing and the humble brag of like, you know, just so humbling to have preached for 10,000 last weekend. You know, it's just like, what's God doing in your life? Um, how can I encourage you to see and to enjoy Jesus? This is how Jesus is with us. Do you know him? Do you want to be near him? Do you want to be changed by his understated but genuine authority? His presence is humble. Well, going on here, verses 8 and 9, I would say his presence is also hopeful. As hopeful is how I would describe most of the crowds that have accompanied Jesus to Jerusalem. You know, again, many of them have seen either 
Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, or they've gone and checked it out for themselves and see, yes, Lazarus is risen from the dead. And so thousands of those people, as scripture tells this story, are like, this is it. Like, first of all, this is him. This is the Messiah who raises the dead. He is the true like warrior king that was promised way back in the Old Testament. This, this is the one. And then they're thinking like, oh man, what better time to have the Messiah, the anointed one, show up and lead an armed revolution against Rome, but at Passover. And it's like what God did back there with Moses overcoming the power of the Pharaohs, he's gonna do it again. And, and we're gonna, let's, let's go. And they're like, they're ready to take the hill. And this is why this, this expectation as they, they tear off their own robes and throw them on the road and these palm branches just littered everywhere and they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save now. Son of David is like, we recognize you are a descendant of David, therefore a legitimate heir to the throne of Israel. And you're here and you're here now and you're here at Passover. And so they're like, man, as David defeated Goliath and set us free from Philistine rule, as Moses liberated the people from Pharaoh, like here's Jesus, the warrior king, and he's gonna break the backs of Rome and we're gonna be free. And uh, it's like, oh, okay, oh, this is awkward because uh, within five days, Jesus will be betrayed, mocked, beaten, scourged, spat upon, crucified. Within five nights, Jesus will be dead and buried in a borrowed tomb. So you're like, well, you just said his presence is hopeful. And he dashed the hopes of a nation. So go figure well, I'd say his presence is hopeful because the people that followed him on that day, even shouting Hosanna to the son of David, they were only partly wrong, which means they were partly right. Because they're thinking, I hope Jesus will be the one to deliver us from oppression. I hope Jesus is the one who will set us truly free. I hope that Jesus is the one who restores our calling as a covenant people of God and reminds us why we're here on this earth and what we're here to do and what that family is supposed to look like. And they thought that he would do those things through military revolution. And the only part they got wrong, family, is the military revolution part. Because within a week, God's people would be forever truly delivered from oppression. God's people would be truly free. God's people would truly have our calling restored to us. We know this is our mission because Jesus not only came to die, he came to conquer the grave. So in Christ, we have hope. Not, not like the wishful thinking kind of hope, but a confident expectation thinking on the cross, the enemy of God and us was mortally wounded. And like, make no mistake, like Satan's still around for some period of time, but he was mortally wounded. Sin lost its power to condemn you. The grave, death, lost its power to hold you. All because of what Jesus accomplished on this week. That's why I say his presence, he's not coming to give you exactly, specifically the kind of hope in the kind of way that you're like, oh, I've got it all figured out. Jesus, in my life, you're supposed to do this and this and this, and it'll look just like this, and then I'll have hope. 
but very often he is showing up in your life. And if you could step back from your plans for Jesus and embrace his plans for you, you would realize, man, God's doing like 90% of the stuff I wanted. Not the 10% of the details, but then he's doing all this other stuff that I could never hope or dream. We can hope in him because his presence is hope. Number three, his presence is holy. Verses 12 and 13. Notice this. Where does Jesus go when he enters Jerusalem? I kind of hinted at this before, but the living and true temple goes to the stone temple where God had put his glory and his name all those years earlier, but had been departed for generations. And again, I want you to kind of picture this scene with me. So I mentioned before, white limestone, gilded with gold, hundreds of feet tall, sitting on the edge of a cliff of the Kidron Valley, 400 feet high. And you're walking up to this place, and there's this royal, it's called the Royal Stoa, which is like a portico. And there are these gates. And you come through this portico and into this large plaza or courtyard with the temple there in the middle of that courtyard. And if you're there at Passover in particular, what you would encounter as you step through the gates of that royal portico would be a lot of commotion, honestly. Just there are, as Jesus mentions, there are money changers everywhere. And what, what's behind that is, you know, Jews living under Roman control had to use Roman money. You know, Jesus, this is even the time that Jesus, they, they bring the coin to Jesus and they're like, you know, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he's like, show me the coin. And they're like, well, we have a bunch of them here, but we also have our own temple money. And to buy sacrifices, to buy food, you had to exchange your Roman money for temple money. There are animals there, you know, the, the pigeons, the turtle doves, the, the lambs, and people, as they have different you know, wealth. If they had a lot of money, they could buy a lamb. If they had less money, they could buy birds for their sacrifices. They would come and buy food, like food that didn't travel well. They would buy in this place, in this big market, big farmer's market, okay? And they're like, okay, that, I want that for our Passover dinner. I want that. I want to buy some things for our family, and then we'll go eat. And so it is, a, it is an incredibly noisy place, just packed with humans and animals and just this roar of bargaining and frustration. And Jesus walked, that, that's, that's where Jesus goes on Palm Sunday. And what Jesus notices, if you didn't kind of catch this in verse 12, is the very people who should be facilitating the worship of the true God in this place are erecting all kinds of barriers to encountering God. They are charging unreasonably excessive rates of exchange. You know, we just went to Europe on vacation and I was like, I just want to use a credit card so I don't have to think about like pounds and the euro and all that. But like, imagine going and you get there and you're like, wait, now today only because of this holiday, it's like $7 is one euro instead of one to one. And this is the sort of thing that they were doing, just knowing we can rip all the people off, hundreds of thousands of people. And what are they going to do? They're here for the Passover. They're going to buy the food. They're going to buy the sacrifices. And we, the aristocracy, the religious leaders, we and our cronies get filthy rich off the back of worshipers that we're cheating. 
And Jesus is livid. And he's basically like, how dare you swindle people in the name of worship and in the name of God? And he just trashes the place. I mean, you got to love it. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Again, quoting what I showed you in the Old Testament earlier. I said Jesus' presence is holy because Jesus comes to this place that should have been carved out for the name of Yahweh. And he's like, you know what? Consumerism, corruption, and Jesus don't mix. And I just wonder, and this is a serious question, as you invite and then allow the presence of Jesus in your own life, like what are some tables in your heart that he would love to throw over? Just like, I see this, that, that ain't holy. That is corrupt. That is standing in the way of you enjoying me. Maybe just because you enjoy something else so much, or maybe because your mind is just filled with something that's wearing you down and corrupting your thinking and hurting you. And, and I wonder the same about the American church. And I don't mean just Grace City, but like Western church culture. I imagine some tables that Jesus would love to flip because he's holy and his presence is holy. Which, by, by the way, holy, I mean, because you wouldn't associate like a temper tantrum with holiness, right? But holy is not this like pious, goody two-shoes, like stiff, formal thing that we often make it in our culture. It just means set apart, Holiness is like, I am set apart and I want my life to be set apart for God. And when Jesus shows up, he's like, yeah, because I'm holy, I wanna help you do that. I wanna help you be holy so we can know one another. So his presence is holy. Number four, his presence is hospitable, verse 13. So we're kind of continuing our tour of this scene, right? So we said we, we walk up this mountain, we come through those gates, through the royal portico, there's noise, there's thousands of people or tens of thousands of people just cramming in, animals and all that. And if you push past that portico and keep going toward the temple, you will very soon encounter a low wall that every so many feet, there are signs posted in various languages that basically say, warning Gentile, if you proceed beyond this point, you will have no one to blame for your own death except yourself. Gentile, come no further. Inside that, you would find another smaller courtyard. So you're getting closer and closer, more and more smaller and smaller courtyards. Now you've got the courtyard of women. And congratulations, Jewish women. You get to come a little bit further than the Gentiles, but only so far and then regular men, and then the priesthood, and then obviously the one high priest. So Jesus is here. The same Jesus, by the way, who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's here. Here's Jesus who spent much of his earthly ministry in places like Samaria and the Decapolis. And the Decapolis was this Deca, 10. It was 10 cities out 
east of the Jordan River, heavily populated by a Gentile population, and Jesus kept going out to them. And people assumed, well, you're going out to them because it's a wilderness, it's a desert, and that's where the revolutionaries raised their armies. And, and, and Jesus was out there, like, feeding thousands of people bread and fish. Like, really scary stuff, but he was inviting them to come and be filled by him. So I picture this Jesus who says, anyone come. My ministry is to Jew and Gentile. And Mark adds a detail here that Matthew doesn't. I see him shaking his head in like holy disgust. And he says this, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting Isaiah 56, and I want to read to you five or so verses from Isaiah 56. I want you to have the context of what is on Jesus' heart as he looks at that wall and says, didn't I tell you, isn't it written in your, in your Bible that God made this a house of prayer for all the peoples of the earth? Isaiah 56, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuchs say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give him an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." And I say Jesus' presence is hospitable. Let me put it differently. His presence is welcoming. His presence is inclusive. His presence is profligately loving. Where Jesus went, walls came down. Do you get that? He's like, in in a few days, I'm going to be crucified right over here where if we get our geography right, He could look to his left past one of those thieves and see there's the temple. I can see it as I hang on the cross. And that whole thing is coming down because I am the true temple who will lead you back to God with hospitality and love. And where people, or where where Jesus went to broken people who were sexist and elitist and racist and ethnocentric and all of that, those sinful broken people got this incredible welcome as part of one people of God. And I just want to say with that, if we live in Jesus' presence, I mean, individually and as a church family, we will reflect that, that boundless welcome, that inclusivity that Jesus himself demonstrated. And I'm not talking for a second about turning a blind eye to sin or condoning sin, let alone celebrating sin, because you never saw Jesus do that. But the reality is people are sinners, so are you. So am I. So are we going to include other sinners? 
like us, who need this healing touch of Jesus. Because where he went, he's like, no, no, no. It's not Jews that get in and Gentiles are kept out, or men get in and women are kept out, or elite group of the aristocracy who get in and the plebes are left out. He's like, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. And a church that follows this Jesus and is centered on the presence of this Jesus would have that same welcoming, hospitable heart demonstrated in welcoming, hospitable actions toward all. Finally, number five, his presence is healing. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And um, I should probably tell you this is another big no-no. The, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, looked at people with physical imperfections like leprosy, blindness, deafness, an issue of blood, and said, you aren't whole, the term they used. You aren't whole. You're broken. So you can't come here to this place of worship. And I want you to think about that for a second. So, so the one place in the world most associated with the true and living God was off-limits to broken people. Like, are you kidding me? But there was this whole religious structure that, that propped up those guys and their families, and they just kept perpetuating the same disgusting filth and corruption and self-centeredness. And if you disagreed with them or you outed them for being who they really are, they got rid of you. And they kept doing their thing. Well, I, I love this. And Jesus is just like, uh, okay, I see you blind. I see you lame. Uh, come on in. Just, just come. And it's not like to the temple building, but it's to the temple courtyards. He's like, come. Come. Why, why would you not be able to sacrifice to the true and living God in a broken state? Do, do these other people not realize how broken they are? And I love that it's a blind person and a lame person. Because you know what's true of blind and lame people? They don't see right. And they don't walk right. Which is like all of us. We don't see correctly in our native state, and we don't walk out the journey of this life correctly apart from the healing presence of Jesus. So it's kind of a metaphor for all of us. He's like, okay, you can't see properly. You can't walk properly without me, but come and be healed. So maybe there's someone here and you're thinking, yeah, like the Christian religion. Like, how do I get in on that? Because I know my history. I know my story. I know stuff that I even struggle with right now. And you're thinking, I need to, I need to clean myself up. I need, to, I need to figure it out. And then come. And I think you would hear Jesus say, like, you're not going to figure it out without me. You're not supposed to clean up your own life and then come. You come to the healer who heals. You come to the cleanser who cleanses. You come to the Savior who saves. Let him do his work in your life. So my point of this message, other than just walking you through these few short verses from Matthew 21, is Jesus has come to restore God's presence. And he initially did it right there in the temple but as we bring this up to date in our own lives, I want us to make sure that we're not so focused on doing good things for God that we miss out on being with God. It's, it's easy and it's good. I like to spend time in the Word, 
to, to spend time in prayer. It's good to, to tithe. It's good to serve your church family. It's good to serve your community. But, but we can get so busy, like the religious culture of Jesus' day, doing good things that we never actually spend time, just like focused time being present with God. You know, a number of you have asked, like, hey, did you guys have a great time in London and Paris? And we did. I'd never been overseas before. It was amazing. Like, Marty did this amazing job of, like, planning flights and hotels and certain things to see. And um, a bunch of you have asked, like, like what, what was the best thing, though? And I'm like, honestly, being with my people, you know, our, our daughter has moved out of our house. Like, she got to travel with us for eight days. And I was like, uh, you know, it's cool that we saw, like, Notre Dame and Big Ben and the Tower Bridge and all this stuff, the Louvre, like, Yay, Mona Lisa, little tiny painting on the one wall way over there. Um, there was way cooler art there. I'll tell you about it someday. But it's like, yeah, yeah, it's good that we did those things. I'm glad that we didn't just go and sit in a hotel room and be like, here we are in Paris together, just vibing in the hotel, you know. But, but honestly, it's like we, we could have done a lot of different things on any given day, and it still would have been amazing because of the presence of my people. And I, I don't want us to get so focused on like the vacation mode with God. It's like, well, let's go here and do this and do this and do this and do this and like yelling at the kids and come on, this is supposed to be fun, come on. And it's like, and, and religion and church can be that way if we're not like, I want to be intentional spending time in and with the presence of Jesus by his spirit who brings us to the Father so that now as we serve, we're serving in the, you know, the healing, the hospitality, the holiness, the humility of Christ. So again, Jesus came on Palm Sunday to deliver us from empty, powerless religion that lacks his presence. Lord, today we seek your presence.